This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always, well, you know, I can't always say as always because his brother is taking the world by storm. He's the CEO of The Witnessing, the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself. Y'all know who it is. Jamar Tisby, what's going on, brother? Hey, listen, I know it's a lot of dynamic voices out there, right? And we're trying to bring dynamic voices for a diverse church. But you can't uh-huh, get rid of me. Uh-huh. You can't get rid of me. I keep coming back like a bad backache. Yeah, yeah. I'm here. <laughs> you ain't going nowhere. <laughs> Nobody's trying to get rid of you, brother. Listen, listen. We just, we just happy when you grace us with your Ah, friends. there That's you go. I'm there you go. <laughs> nah, but we're proud of you, man. We're happy to see the book taking off and you're speaking everything, man. We You show up everywhere, man. Sam's Club, you in Target, you at Walmart. I didn't see how to fight race. You know, this is, a funny, this is a funny story. Somebody reached out to me and were like, yo, have you read this book? And sent me a picture of your book. Uh- <laughs> and so I said, LOL, <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, thinking that it was a joke. And they were like, oh, okay, bet. Thanks. And I was oh, like, they were dead serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, so I, they I, had no idea that we host the podcast. I was going to say, big you tell them to subscribe they to the podcast. No yeah. Subscribe, rate, of review. Course, of course. Listen, they had no clue whatsoever. This is somebody I've known for a while too. So I'm telling you, brother, you taking off, man. I don't even... You know, I'm trying to grab the coattails, listen, man. Listen, and, and <laughs> I learn a lot from this podcast. I learn a lot from our listeners. Y'all give me wings to fly. And if one of us rises, we all rise. So that's what that's what oh, we're trying man, to do. That's what we believe. Yes, yes. That's what we believe. We're happy to have you back today, man. This is a personal episode for us, something that is very important. And Jamar is actually going to get very personal today. Um, and as we talk through this episode... We kind of want to give a little bit of framing because Jamar was really instrumental in helping us to see this particular title of this theme, this content focus that we have at The Witness over the next few months. And the team just kind of took it and ran with it. So over the next few months, you'll be seeing a lot of stories and you'll be hearing from a lot of different voices about this theme that you probably heard us say before, but we're really going to nail down into it. The theme is called Leave Loud. And just some backstory, in 2018, as most of you know, the New York Times published an article titled A Quiet Exodus, Why Black Worshippers Are Leaving White Evangelical Churches. And it's an article that was written by Campbell Robertson, and it chronicled the plight of black Christians who, most of whom are listening right now, who quietly exited their churches after their pastors and fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, their siblings have failed to denounce state-sanctioned violence against Black people. They have failed to address white Christian nationalism, white supremacist Christianity, failed to talk about systemic racism, failed to confront everyday bigotry. And since that time, and it's important for us to say this, 
things have gotten worse, not better. And so I think there's this mentality that things are just going to normalize by osmosis, that we're all going to figure it out. The truth of the matter is things have not gotten better even over the past three years. And if there's one failure in the article, which is incredibly well-written and it chronicles Black stories so well, there's one thing, one failure, and it's no fault of the writer. It's that it really undersells just how tired Black people really are. We're exhausted. And I think it's shown in the most recent months because we've seen the surge of Black Christian leaders and also congregants in predominantly white or multi-ethnic churches and Christian spaces They've decided that it's time for them to go. And it's not just limited to Black leaders and congregants. It also includes people of color. It also includes white Christian brothers and sisters who are standing in solidarity. But we really want to center Black Christians here at The Witness. And we want to bear witness to this hurt, this harm, this frustration that so many of our siblings are experiencing. And we're here to say enough is enough. It is time for us to leave loud. And to leave loud is to tell our stories. It's to name things for what they are, to take back the dignity that we've lost while being in institutions that just don't value the fullness of the image of God within us, and to go where we're celebrated, not where we're tolerated. So we're here to save the days of tiptoeing out the back of the church with the church finger up. Y'all know if y'all grew up in black circles, you know that's what we do. Those days are done. It is time for us to tell the truth and to shame the devil. And so over these next few months, we're going to be sharing these stories of Black Christians who have made the decision to leave loud. And we're also going to be providing thoughtful analysis, hopefully words of wisdom and resources for those who have already left or who are discerning whether or not they should leave loud. We invite you to share your stories using the hashtag leave loud and remember that you are not alone. We are walking through this together. Just to show you how much we're not alone in this, how much we're walking through this together, we're going to tell the story of the founder of The Witness, the CEO of The Witnessing, Jamar Tisby. And Jamar, I think this is so interesting because we start with our own, with your story and kind of our own broader witness origin story, because I think our origin story and in many ways your origin story is a story about leaving loud, right? It's a story about coming into the fullness of who God has created us to be. And necessarily that means separating away from some toxic spaces and some spaces that didn't value that. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um, A lot of the story of what became the witness, and we have to say what became the witness as part of the story, is wrapped up in my own story of leaving certain Christian spaces uh, to to embark on what has really become a wilderness wandering, uh, following the cloud by day and the fire by night that the Lord graces to send our way. And I have a lot of preface, <laughs> a lot of preface, because oh come on, come on, this is this is an attempt on my part to be um, more vulnerable and honest about this topic than I've ever been before in public. And so it, it, is, it does not come naturally to me. It is something I've avoided doing for various reasons we'll get into. Um, so, so I enter this as sort of take my sandals off because this is sacred ground. I mean, I know it's a podcast, mm-hmm. but 
it is, I think these words are both a witness and a prayer. A witness and a prayer. A witness in the sense, this is what I've been through. This is what I've experienced. This is what I've felt. This is what I've gone through. Um, this is my testimony, painful though it may be. Uh, so, so it's bearing witness to, to where I've been and what God has gotten me through, ultimately, is getting me through. Um, but it's also a prayer. And it is a prayer of lament, to put a finer point on it. Um, a lament uh, about what I've been through and gone through, about the pain, the hurt, the trauma, the betrayal. But it's also an affirmation, an affirmation of the image of God in people of African descent. And, you know, I've said this for years, that if there is to be a 21st century reformation in the church, it's going to hinge around the doctrine of the image of God. And the way I view this witness, this testimony that we're about to share is um, one part lament and another part affirmation of the image of God in myself and Mm -hmm. in all people of African descent. So Mm. I say that because there's going to be probably a lot of trolls who listen to this, who aren't going to have any idea um, the experiential place this is coming from. They're going to try to intellectualize it. They're going to try to hold it at arm's length in two fingers, like if they're examining some bug that they found, right? Um, But then there are going to be listeners who know viscerally exactly what I'm talking about. Um, If not the precise experiences, then the precise feelings. So I say all that to say, um, this is for me. This is something I need to do as part of my healing and my witness of my story. It's also for Black people because so often the trauma that we experience is compounded by the silence we feel like we have to keep around that trauma. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So it's bad enough to go through this stuff. It only makes it worse to feel like you have to hold it all inside, bottle it it up, hide it for whatever reason. So if that's you, then I hope my story is liberating. Mm. Man, you know, it, it really takes me back to hearing about your conversion hmm. and how much of your conversion and your spiritual Christian origin story, it is visited by white evangelicals, whiteness. And you talk about that a little bit, but I think sometimes we don't, we, we don't really properly appreciate the gravity of the first time we have that encounter and the the surrounding cultural context and how much that leads to perhaps an affinity or a loyalty or a clinging, um, even despite very painful circumstances. Mm. How much of that early conversion and discipleship do you think kept you in those spaces longer than what perhaps you would have, you know, if you didn't have that experience? So I became a Christian in high school through the ministry 
of a white evangelical youth group. I've shared that before. Um, I had as textbook a conversion experience one could have in the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, it was like friendship evangelism. I'm very good friends with the guy who uh, first told me about Jesus and was was there when I became a Christian. Um, it was at a youth retreat, and we were in a cabin. It must have been winter because it smelled like wet socks from the snow melting. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And it was me. It was my youth group leader. It was one of the adult leaders, and it was the guy who, um, my age, who who first invited me to the youth group. And I literally prayed the sitter's prayer. Um, and 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 it was like I said, textbook conversion from you know point A to point Z or whatever you want to call it. But mm-hmm. what I didn't know as a teenager was sort of the religious dimensions of race. Now, I had experienced race as a young black man. We'd already been profiled. My group of friends was mostly Latino guys and black dudes. And, you know, we, we felt it. We, we, we knew it was in the air, uh, even growing up in the Midwest. But uh, what I didn't know was how white evangelicalism was so insidiously polite about race. Um, by which I mean they they it was colorblind. So you know I got to put on my history hat for a second. Back in the 1950s and 60s, it's starting to become culturally unacceptable to be super overtly racist. Now, obviously, there are still those folks, but particularly with things like uh, the defeat of George Wallace and his third party. Uh, presidential bid in the 1960s, it was very clear that to be this, you know, sort of foaming at the mouth, racist, using racial slurs, championing segregation, that wasn't quite in vogue anymore. And a lot of white Christians are taking their cues from the likes of guys like Billy Graham, who, you know, I've talked extensively about this in The Color of Compromise. I won't rehearse the whole thing, but basically, you know, took a colorblind approach. He wasn't he, he, he was nice on an individual basis and even advocated on an ind- individual basis for certain things for certain black people. Um, but in general, took the all the ground is level at the foot of the cross approach, totally devoid of any systemic institutional aspects. Still, you know, the only president he ever vocally came out and endorsed was Richard Nixon who ran on a law and order Southern strategy platform. So, so, so this colorblind Christianity still makes room for anti-blackness. They just don't use the terms, right? And that's what I was immersed in. And it wasn't even this sort of full-throated embrace of anti-black policies or anything. It was a deafening silence around race that allowed the status quo to persist. And in that environment, especially as a teenager, you come to, you, you realize on a couple levels, one, I'm different. I'm a minority here. I, there's something here where I don't quite connect. The girls don't respond the same way, right? Uh, there are no black girls there. Um, I don't know their songs. I don't know their lingo. I don't know their families or their cultural references or anything like that. And yet they're not talking about it. So is it, is, am I, am I off base? And it was this constant, like, 
I know it's there, but nobody else seems to say anything. So is it really there? And growing, growing in my Christian faith in the context of that. And I could go on and on, but that absolutely sort of shaped me because nobody was talking about it. I didn't develop a language to talk about it. I had to do that on my own and stumble and fumble. And that kept me there longer because if you can't name the problem, then you can't address the problem well. And that's what was happening. Yeah. And then there's not just the spiritual dimensions and the church dimensions and the theological dimensions, but then there's this educational rearing and shaping that takes place. And when I met you in 2012, you were in the midst of that, but you had been through that even before, probably with undergrad in some like context, but it really concretizes when you go to seminary. And so the Jamar I met in seminary is not the Jamar I know now, <laughs> right? Oh, right. Like there, were, there were adjustments and there's growth and that's a positive thing. But I think it's also important for us to say you were really deep in the reformed <laughs> theological seminary world. I mean, let's name it. Like you were deep in that, bro. Um, can you talk about the education? Because obviously there was there was undergrad at Notre Dame. And what was the choice like to go to Reformed Theological Seminary? And then what was the experience like in the initial stages of being in that environment? So much of my education was in Catholic schools, uh, K through eight. And racially speaking, there was a lot of brown folks. Um, and so I grew up around sort of diversity in schools and even my high school, except I was in the college prep courses, which was still mostly white. Then I go to college at Notre Dame, which is a Catholic school. Um, black people, when I was there, were only about 3% of the undergrad. So living in an all guys dorm with all white dudes was an experience. Um, but that school also had the Center for Social Concerns which had service projects like constantly. And it was through those service projects that uh, I kind of got a taste for the hardest things I've ever done in my life, um, which is uh, do my best to serve with and alongside the poor. And that's what got me to join Teach for America, which is what brought me down to the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side as a teacher. And I have spent my entire adult life in the Deep South because of that. And it was through that experience that I came face to face with real issues of justice, um, living in what has been the fourth poorest county in this country and dealing with all the generational poverty that goes back to sharecropping, that goes back to convict leasing, that goes back to race-based chattel slavery. That's real because it's walking into my class on two legs every day, right? So now I'm asking questions about justice and finding that this white evangelical background doesn't have the resources I need to sort of make sense of this theologically. But I always had felt a calling to ministry and strangely even a calling to seminary. I don't know where that came from, but it's something I always wanted to do. So in 2011, I enrolled at Reformed Theological Seminary. And I had gotten exposed to Reformed theology in college through John Piper's book, Desiring God, um, the same guy who, 
who um, introduced me to the faith in high school, sent me this book. And what I loved about it was like all the scripture references. Like, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. It was just, I didn't even know it was called Reformed Theology. It was just like a, a lot of Bible. And I was in this Catholic school that had so much tradition. You know, the, the Bible would come up in lectionary readings, but they had a homily, not a sermon. It might last 10 minutes. You know, the center of the mass is the Eucharist. Right. Um, so right. I was like, this is word based. This is Bible based. I want more of it. And I didn't know anything about the sort of racial history or anything like that. Along the way, a lot of people don't know this. I, I spent a year at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando in 2007, 2008. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lived in your state for a minute. Um, it was. I mean, uh, it's Orlando. <laughs> it's, uh, I know it's a very different part. Um, no, but that's that's a totally different environment to learn reform theology and different professors. And very much so. A, yeah, very much so. Totally different. It was it was more. These words, liberal and progressive, really still don't apply to any reform theological seminary campus. But <laughs> along the spectrum, it was it was less fundamentalist uh, than other campuses. And here's an interesting part in the racial journey. I got there. There was an organization called Reformed Blacks of America. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. It was. Yes. Um, there have been many iterations of what became the Reformed African American Network. There have been many similar attempts before it. Well, at this point, RBA um, had a, a a partnership with RTS Orlando that gave scholarships to black students, and I got one of those scholarships. So. I bounced. I went to RTS Orlando. But in the midst of that, I heard God calling me back to the classroom, uh, actually back to the school, but as an administrator. So then I went back to the Delta, the same school I taught at before, and I was the, the middle school principal. But I started at RTS Orlando. And that's where I got introduced to the PCA. Now we're starting to name names. Um, hmm. Presbyterian Church in America. I was looking for churches in Orlando a bunch of the guys were going to, um, I believe it was Covenant Presbyterian Church that met at the seminary. So that was one thing. I could find it. I knew where it was. It was convenient, right? Um, but I started going there, and that was my first PCA church. It was a church in Orlando. And I liked it because the Westminster Confession of Faith, this very well thought out, thorough theological exposition of what they believed Christianity to be to this day. I very much appreciate the explication of the Ten Commandments in the um, catechism, uh, the, the, the applications and the explanations. Uh, I loved the polity, the ecclesiology, the rule by elders, the, um, the process of, of, of doing church on a formal basis. I thought that could put up some healthy safeguards against financial abuse and, um, you know, mission drift, whatever it might be. But it was all white, and I was well aware of that. But I thought, you know what, I can, I can, you know, I can find a place. I've been in all, you know, mostly white environments before. But it was virulent, which I would come to find out. So you asked about <laughs> RTS Orlando in 2011, yeah. and that's where I really started to find out. <laughs> yeah, and so this is what's so interesting, Jamar, is, is okay, this is, this is something. All right, I'm getting the tea. I'm getting the tea now. So, <laughs> what's so interesting though, bro, is you 
I think it is it is a metaphor that I met you while you were being deployed mm. on behalf of the seminary. And don't get me wrong, I think it's good to represent where you come from and you know there's there's financial benefit to that and being a part of admissions. That's not what I'm talking about. I know a lot of schools do that. But I think especially where we were, we were at uh, Reach Records Unashamed or Man Up Conference, mm-hmm. Man Up Conference. And so, which in and of itself, I mean, there's just so many layers to that. <laughs> but we were at we were at a Man Up Conference and it was a whole bunch of dudes in ATL and you were being deployed there as an ambassador for the school. And you weren't just a student. You were also part of a movement of Black students Mm. there that were really taking root in trying to push this seminary towards diversity and trying to really do the work. And so it's one of the things I don't think people really understand because they didn't know you at that (laughs) time. But you were, I mean, not just as an advocate and ambassador for the school, but you were really trying to make the place healthy. And you and other people were really trying to really help them see something that they just could not see on their own. And so the way you were deployed in Jackson is different than the way you were participating in Orlando. So how did how did it deepen? How did the rabbit hole get deeper in Jackson versus in Orlando? I will look back at pictures 2015 and before, and it's like I'm looking at somebody else's life. Hmm. That's how drastic of a, of a different place I was in. So in 2011, I was um, ending my third year as a middle school principal. Uh, I knew I wanted to go back to seminary. I was looking for places. I didn't even know RTS had a Jackson campus. Uh, I found that out like in the middle of the school year. And I was like, let me check this out. And I went to Jackson for two reasons, the seminary and there was a multiracial PCA church there. And um, I was like, this is, this is perfect. I was so stinking excited. It was like everything I wanted. It was a multiracial church that was Presbyterian. I could go to seminary, intern at the church. All of it came together. And um, as part of like the financial aid package, I would have to work in admissions. And so I actually started in admissions before I started classes because uh, I started working in the summer and then classes started in the fall. And so it was in the summer that all of this started to come together. So number one, it's literally my job to work in admissions. Number two, um, the admissions counselor at the time, the way he did it was based on your background and your interests. He's like, is there a special sort of demographic or area you want to recruit? So some some guys had had worked with Reformed University Fellowship, so they went and recruited RUF. Some folks were women, and so they recruited women. I was the only black person. (laughs) So I was like, I guess I'll recruit black people. Um, And so we started, I mean, even before the summer, I think we had the seed for what became the African-American Leadership Initiative. Because when I got there, unless I'm mistaken, I think you could count on one hand the number of black American uh, students at the seminary. Mind you, 
This is in Jackson, Mississippi, which has the second highest proportion of black people of any city over 100,000. It's 80% black. 80% black town. Eight out of 10 people in town are black. And they had literally a handful of black people at the seminary. So I'm like, what the heck is this about? So so African-American Leadership Initiative, um, which I think we launched, I think it was fall 2011 in in October, just before RAN. so I was in charge of that. And that's how we met up. So I would go, here's how, here's how deep it goes, man. Th- one of the reasons they didn't have black people was one, they weren't tapping into the city. And it was a bunch of black churches, a bunch of black pastors. Bro, that's what I was going to ask you. Because I'm like, this is a, this a natural problem. It is a natural problem. And you know, I mean, black pastors love an education. And they almost don't care where it comes Absolutely. from. They'll get a degree from a white school, Absolutely. you know? Um, yeah. But that's how bad it was. Like, black pastors didn't know about it. The ones who did was like, this racist. You know, we ain't going there. Had a bad reputation. You know, all of that stuff. So, 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 so that was on the one hand. But on the other, on the other we wanted to cash a nationwide net. And, and they didn't know, they didn't have any clue where to recruit black seminary students. So the way we started... Way I started was let's list the conferences that Black Christians show up to. Man Up was one of those conferences. Um, you said there was a whole bunch of people there, a whole bunch of Black people, a whole bunch of Black Christian men, yes. which is you know, yes. Uh, and and see this thing it goes even deeper, right? A lot of them were listening to quote unquote reformed rappers. Yes, you feel me? <laughs> you know this better yes. than I do because your story oh, you used to write about this stuff. Legacy Conference, yeah, yeah. Um, Legacy Disciple Conference in Chicago, all these places where a lot of good was happening, but also this merge of Christian hip hop as a culture, as subculture, and Reformed theology as a theological system. And so it's just all being merged into one natural thing with all of the cultural trappings of you know the Black community, but at the same time, the kind of this weird separation from the black church and black Christian faith. And then also, um, you know, a, a very overt intersection of names you would never imagine. <laughs> I mean, John Piper and Paul Washer. And I'm like, how are these I people told here? You, it's like, and, you wouldn't even recognize the lives that we had. Yeah. yeah. It was just like, now you look back and you're like, how did this even work for as long as it did? But it was, it was booming. So to see you at those conferences, that was that was I was obvious because that's where a lot of people felt as though they were being called based upon the music and the culture they were being a part of. So as a recruiter, I'm like, these are the places to go to because not only are they black and Christian, they've got some exposure to reform theology and some of the same names that they know are going to be affiliated with the seminary and in same orbit and all of that stuff. So this was prime recruiting grounds for me. And that's when we met up. And so you met me. I was I was waving the banner, like literally. We had banners printed up for you know the recruitment table and the exhibit yeah. space at conferences, right? And my thinking was this: by this time, I knew how white it was. By this time, I knew they weren't talking about race in any sort of sophisticated way. I was naive enough to think that if there was enough of us. We could carve out a space within reformed evangelical Christianity where we could thrive, 
where we could be healthy, where we could flourish. Yo, I gotta, I gotta say this though, and I know, I know it's like, yo, y'all was some, y'all was conservative, and y'all was, you know, drinking the Kool Aid and waving the banner. But let me tell you something. 2013, when I went to, we were at the TGC conference, and I'm gonna name this because this was a very important thing. It was when I saw you in action for the first time. Like I had met you, but I hadn't seen you in action. So it's all these people in this room because they had given y'all this special this special slot where y'all could kind of have a gathering. And it was it was packed out. Like, I mean, it's early in the morning, it's like 7 30, 8 o'clock, something like that. Conference kicks off at nine that day, and they gave y'all like an eight o'clock spot. So I was like, man, it's probably not gonna be a whole bunch of people here. It was like standing room only. I was sitting right behind Vody Bacham. Um, <laughs> I was sitting right behind Vody, and I didn't know Jasmine at the time, so I was sitting right behind um, his daughter Jasmine as well. And it was you and Phil up there, and it was like Shy Lynn was in the room. John uh, Piper. John Piper, Justin Taylor, all, all these. I mean, it's, it's a packed room, right? But let me say this, bro. Y'all were like radicals to us. Like y'all were like, hmm. because the way at the time, what we saw was y'all are are like the perfect synthesis between the theology and the real world cultural. Like the way I remember you started talking about Revelation 7. And and you you like you almost broke, but it was so much anointing in that room mm. because you you had such a power, and it was just something where we were looking at y'all like y'all was radicals, That's like y'all so was wild. like something. <laughs> so and so we didn't look at. So I think the the perception is, man, if you're in these spaces, you just hate yourself and you're not going to talk about these things and you're ignoring. But we didn't we didn't see that. I'm like, yo, this is real life. This is the connection between our culture and theology. And I was like, yo, I'm so proud to be in this room. And what I think we didn't know and what I think we underestimated was just how entrenched the resistance really was. Because that to me was like a turning point. When I saw that, I was like, oh, these dudes about to... I, I Honestly, I was thinking in my head, oh, these dudes about to be speaking main stage of this conference like next year. Or in two years, because they they did it like every two years or something like that. I was like, man, these dudes fit to speak main stage, bro, because there's just so much power in them, and that's just where I came from, man. If you got the, if you got the word, you got the mm. rhema, you you there, mm. like, oh no, this is what we need to hear. And I was like, and the conference was cool, like no shade. The conference was cool for me at the time, but I was like, man, ain't nobody speaking like this, man. And I'm like, they gave them an eight a.m. slot in this. I was like, yo, they. These boys gonna be headlining next year or two years from now, and bro, that was like a turning point because everything changed like after that. Uh, you know, you yeah. guys launched brand, yeah. and then it seems like everything. It seems like the fault lines started being like just started breaking really quickly. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I didn't even it, my mom wasn't even there yet. Um, that was our our first public sort of coming out in in the reformed and evangelical world you're right it was at that tgc conference um i think i had maybe done some writing for tgc the gospel coalition um you did and so i was able to to contact some of the organizers i was like hey so we had launched um so you you mentioned phil philip holmes still mad respect for him 
uh, we just went in different directions, which I'm sure we'll get to. But um, yeah, absolutely. so he was he was he he came on, you know, first of all, we were in seminary together. He was a black dude from Mississippi, Holmes County, like knew the struggle for real. Um, and he was at RTF. So we we naturally gravitated toward each other. You know, you get the head nod and then you get to talking and it was like history. We did everything. You know, we were we were I can remember sitting in this like conference room at RTS and calling up D.A. Horton out of cold. You know, he didn't know us from anybody. We're like, hey, man, we're doing this thing called the Reformed African-American Network. Here's what it is. Are you interested? Like we we didn't even ask anything. We just want to spread the word, really. So so it was was that grassroots. It was that, you know, just just garage band kind of whatever. Like we going we going we going to sell the tapes out of the trunk. We're going to go to any little club. Whoever's going to listen to us, we're going to get this word out. So it was that kind of vibe. And you're right, man. I was amazed. I, I was constantly amazed in those first few years at the 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 ability of this thing, this idea that we had of the reformed African-American network to draw people and white people too, right? Um, and I think it is precisely because of that power that you sensed in that room that we faced so much opposition. We were a threat. Hmm. The trajectory hmm. we were on was a threat. Wow. And it was almost inevitable that if we embrace that power, if we embrace that confidence, if we embrace that image of godness in us, that it was going to come in direct opposition with the racism and the white supremacy that permeated those circles. And that's exactly what happened. So I'm glad you said that because I hadn't even really thought of it in those terms. It was more along the yes. lines of, oh, we just drinking the Kool-Aid. But man, look, the response we had, we counted, we had 80 people in this little tiny conference room. I remember we blew our whole budget on a continental breakfast table. We had coffee and fruit and and like croissants and it cost hundreds of dollars because that's how they do it at these hotel conferences. Right. We didn't have anything that was that was part of that money was out of pocket. Uh, uh, but, but all these people showed up and every time we did something, that's exactly what happened. And so when we, when I would go out to recruit, I wasn't like, Hey, come become white. (laughs) I was like, look, within this school, we're going to get this education. We're going to get these resources and we can actually theologize around what it means to be black within this tradition and beyond and and really make a contribution, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm glad you said that because it was more complicated than, oh, that we were just, or I was just blind. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Yeah, yeah. What changed, man? Like, what, what, what happened? This is 2013, okay. and we know what happens in 2014. Okay. Yeah. 
like what was what, okay let's talk first of first of all like what was the moment of opposition that you were like oh this is a thing and then secondarily oh this is going to be a problem yeah cuz there's difference yeah. like there's a difference like you can you can face some opposition anything you know emotion causes friction anything has conflict anything good is going to be hard we recognize that but then what was that moment where it was like oh this is a problem and this is going to be a problem okay for years to come so there were rumblings 2012 vigilante kills Trayvon Martin I remember a lot of people don't don't realize this RC Sproul's church is in Sanford Florida if I'm not mistaken it's yes. in or near Sanford yes. Florida and I remember yes. scouring the website for any mention of it and maybe they did something in person I don't know but there was nothing on the website and I was like what is this because this was one of the first for our generation really national public outcries over racism. I mean, we had some stuff when we were kids, like Rodney King and all that. But this is when like, we were old enough to know. And that was one of the biggest you know, national events around that. And that, that, that Trayvon Martin's murder said, this silence is loud. I didn't know what was all there to it, but I said, this silence is loud. Then you know, 2013, we were trying to do our own thing. We, 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 we finally launched the website for RAN. I mean, we, it, was, it was felt like it was building momentum. So, so now it, we could produce our own content and we could talk about Trayvon Martin and things. When was the Emanuel 9 massacre? Was that 2014, 2015? Emanuel uh, 9 was 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Because right. I, don't, I don't honestly remember what was going on 2013 and early... 2014. Yeah, 20 June, June 17, 2015. But what was happening then was I was starting to gain more of a public platform within Reformed Evangelical spaces. So I was trying to, I was on a mission to hit that main stage at TGC. Like to me, that was success. To me, that was making it. So I was, you know, speaking at the, the workshops and the seminars. I was making connections and networking. I was writing on RAN and for TGC and other Christian sites, Desiring God. So I'm starting to gain a little platform. And that's when the rumblings start, you know, because now you got the comment section, right? Now you got people showing themselves that they don't really like this race talk. And granted, I'm talking about racial reconciliation. I ain't even talking about nothing hard at this point. Right. Um, right. But even then, what set it off, of course, is Ferguson and Black Lives Matter. And namely, you had a whole bunch of white folks saying this was an isolated incident or even worse yet, Mike Brown got what was coming to him. And if you remember, Vody Bauckham wrote an article that said almost exactly that. And it went so viral that it actually crashed the Gospel Coalition's website. Yes, yes, it did. What people don't know is that he originally submitted that to, to Rand. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And I got the message about the article, and I'll never forget, we were, we were in Jackson at Whole Foods eating, and my wife was with me, and I was like, babe, what do you think of this? She was like, what? No. <laughs> I was like, and honestly, she probably saved Ran and The Witness. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there would be a witness had we published that article. It was it was that inflammatory. Oh, I remember it. So 
that was just like the perfect instance of how different these folk we can see these issues of race and and that's when I started transition to talking more about racial justice than racial reconciliation because anti-black police brutality isn't about choir swaps and pulpit swaps it's not about you know who shares the stage at the conference it's about justice it's about changing systems and policies and practices and laws that govern the way we interact with people and the way we treat black people in particular and then of course that phrase black lives matter was just a lightning rod for controversy and i just could not fathom the depths of ignorance and vitriol that white people put out there but that was just the beginning man and you know what was so interesting is around that time I came onto this podcast yep. and you asked me to be a part of this podcast and I was like, no. Um, <laughs> you were too good for us. You are a professional no, communicator. I was just like, bro, nah, it wasn't that. I was just like, man, I don't really think I have time to really do this. But I remember you and Bo ganged up on me. We were like, nah, you got to do this. And this is important for the movement and all this. And so I was like, all right, cool, whatever. And um, you know what's so funny about that moment? I told my church um, last year, late last year, that at that moment, uh, I was going to push away. I was going to say no. And it was almost like God spoke to me, dropped in my spirit. It's not about you. Like I, I don't think I've ever even told Mm-mm. you that, but a guy like <laughs> God, like the Holy Spirit was like, it's not about you. And I was like, oh, so this is, a, this is a, so I see what I'm going to be doing. Wow. Now. Um, but God. as I got in behind the scenes, bro, and we started talking about racial justice, even within the organization, like, well, I'll say, you know, within the influencers of the organization, not really necessarily within the organization. Um, although maybe some of that existed too, but it was like there was this ingrained response that I just wasn't prepared for, bro. Because I remember in my mind, you're the same dude who took over the room in 2013. You're the same dude that's in these spaces. I I, I understood it. Like when it when it came to me, I was like, they don't know me from nobody. I don't really care, you know. Um, at the time I cared deeply because I was like, man, I'm looking for a tribe, but we'll get into that in another episode. Um, but man, you you were the the dude. You know, how many black people decided to come to RTS because of you? You know, how many black people decided to pursue reform, you know, theological education in in any context because of you? Like how many black people are staying in white spaces because of you? So then I saw the response of you. And I was like, well, hold well, hold up here. How y'all getting on this dude? Because this is your dude. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like me, I'm coming from the outside. But it started to bubble up, man, in conferences. It started to bubble up in obviously comment sections. You and I started having long talks almost almost weekly about this stuff. And I saw the weight and I saw the breaking point coming, but I wanted to believe that, oh, we can carve out a space in here. But time just showed that there was just, because over time, here's what I saw, Jamar. I saw the people who put you on step away from you. Yep. And it wasn't just, it wasn't that they attacked you. It's that they ghosted you. 
it wasn't that they went after you and trashed your name and dragged your name through the mud. I don't even think they do that today. A lot of them that put you on, I think it's just that they stepped away yep. and they disassociated with you without saying explicitly, I'm out. You, you put it perfectly. That's it. King said, in the end, it's not going to be the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends that we remember. And that's what happened. So when I started getting heat, because I'm doing this publicly now, this is the shift, right? I'm writing, I'm speaking, I'm preaching. So I'm a target now. And as soon as that controversy comes, it's not really even controversy, it's trolling, right? As soon as it becomes apparent that everything isn't just two thumbs up, the way a lot of folks reacted around me was to, to step away. Like, we don't know that dude. <laughs> you know, they didn't say it in so many words, but they would not publicly affiliate with me. And they certainly wouldn't publicly defend me. And that's what hurt more than anything. It was like the, the analogy I always think of is, is, is Uriah, when David wants to kill Uriah to cover up his sin. Um, the way he does it is said, put him, put him on the front lines in the heaviest part of the battle. And then when the fighting is most intense, have all his allies uh, draw away and leave him alone. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what it felt like. I was dealing with all these trolls online, in the comment section, at my church, in town, in Jackson, at the seminary. I had classmates, dude, uh, when we did this AALI thing. Classmates who were got back to me were were saying how bad this is, how it's a distraction from the gospel, how you know you're you're making race a thing, blah blah blah, all the typical tropes. These are dudes I sit next to in class, I talk to during the breaks, um, and of course they never confronted me, right? They would say it to somebody else, but we had reformed dude bros coming out the ears. And I didn't know, I didn't know what they were all about on this race stuff, but it got back to me. And then um, we have folks online talking about us, all this stuff. And then Mm -hmm. people from my church, people from the seminary, it's like, like you said, ghosted. Just like, I mean, ghosted in the sense that like, they would still talk to me if it was, Mm -hmm. if it was no risk of them, you know, sort of being publicly affiliated. But when it came time to sort of publicly say something, speak up, say, hey, this isn't right, nah, nothing. When did you graduate from RTS? 2015. Took me forever. <laughs> so 2015, you graduated from RTS. I, I want to say it was 2014. I think it was 2013. This is a moment that sticks out in my head. And then we'll, we'll, we'll move on. But I think it's just this story is just... We were in this classroom with John Piper. It was you, me, and Phil. Mm. You remember this? And we were recording a video. We were recording a series of videos where Phil was interviewing John Piper. And here's the moment for me, Jamar. I'm going to transition this into something else. But the moment was we they were done. And y'all had kind of planned out what you were going to talk about before. Now, First of all, I have no idea how I was in this room, um, but it was like literally the four of us and like maybe a camera guy or something. But if I'm not mistaken, this was at a legacy conference and it was because I think I drove up with Phil and we had spent so much, we had spent, we had a great time, great, great time together. 
Um, again, if not for Phil, Pastor Mike would not exist. Yep. Um, but man, I remember y'all saying, yo, I feel like we need to talk about this Doug Wilson thing. And I remember I was kind of sitting back and I tilted my head to the side. I was like, yo, what what Doug Wilson do? And then y'all told me about it, right? <laughs> now, y'all went in more detail. I had heard some stuff from some other people, but y'all went into more detail. And so I'm like, oh, no, y'all got to talk about that joint. Now, here's what here's what got me, Jamar. This was the moment. And, and it, he probably doesn't even like John Piper probably didn't even think he was doing anything wrong. But this was like a red flag moment to me. Y'all cut the cameras off. Y'all were like, okay, I think we're done. And John Parker was like, no, we got to talk about Doug Wilson. I'm eager to talk about, yeah, I got to talk about Doug Wilson. And so I'm like, you know, in his in his very typical, like John Piper, like joyful, you know, very gregarious, like joyful person when he's when he's like in that mode. And so I was like, oh, he about to flame on. And he didn't, mm. yo. And Jamar, that was the moment where I was like, what is mm. this? I'm a t- bro, <laughs> bro. That was a moment for me because I was like, hold up. Doug Wilson is a Confederate race, race-based chattel slavery yeah, apologist. All, all, <laughs> all the above. Slavery wasn't that bad. Um, there were benevolent relationships between masters and slaves, just full on lost cause, alt history, just whatever, revisionist history. And bro, when he did not, and, and I don't even remember what he said, but it was like so much equivocation. I was like, what is this? That's how they make space for I feel it. like, yeah. bro, I feel like they was making space for these folks. And that's when they were making space for him. And then a couple of years later, started making space for for James White, then then they were just making so much space for people. I'm like, how do you sit in relationship with people who don't believe basic truth about justice? How do you do it? Like, what's the deal here? Make it make sense. And I remember thinking in my head in that moment, as honored as I was to be in that room, I mean, at that time, man, John Piper's like the dude for so many of us. And as honored as I was in that moment, I was like, that is wild to Mm -hmm. me. Because I'm like, man, I don't have, I'm I'm not like, you know, at that time, like I I wasn't as as read and studied as educated as justice on justice as I should be and on our history as I should be. But I was like, now I know that's why. <laughs> and <laughs> so you're there's young like a too, through man. line. This is what Yeah, like bro, I was super young. And so but there's like a through line between bro, I think I was like 23, 24 yeah. at the time. There's like this through line between you that moment and like all these other moments where the people who were supposed to have your back were were more comfortable hanging with dudes. And it was dudes, bro. It was white. This is what I mean. And, and this is black. This is black people. Yes, everything. Yes. Black reform folks. They were more comfortable acquiescing to white racist men, unrepentant racist men, than defending and standing with you. This is the color of compromise. This is why. This is why. You know, I get it when people say, "No, white Christians." made racism like compromise and complicity is too weak a word 
No, I totally get that. And it's true, right? Like there's plenty who did that. But John Piper didn't write Doug Wilson's book, Black and Tan. He doesn't run that blog. He does not out there saying and doing things. But in that moment, he was complicit by making space for that. That's what I mean mm-hmm. by compromise yes. and complicity. They made space, not just him, so many people. They, here's what they did. They couched it in, in the guise of, of, of brotherly love and church unity so that you didn't throw out people, no matter how racist and white supremacist their, their ideas or their actions were. Number one, they wouldn't name it as such, right? Nobody's racist. Nobody's white supremacist in their view. Um, but even if they had, quote unquote, problematic views on race, it was, it was the whole theology behind why folks think so highly about Jonathan Edwards, who owned people who look like me. It's like, well, you know, they, they had a blind spot here, but here's where they're good. Mm-hmm. They would do the same thing in 2015. Well, they have a blind spot here. Yeah, there's this, but the rest of their stuff is good. And that was the whole thing. I don't know how much I caught of that. That's why I mentioned your age, that you were so astute at such a young age. You have wisdom beyond your years. Uh, I've learned so much from you, even though, I mean, for most of this story, you're in your 20s. It's, like, it's wild to me. Um, yeah, not, bro, <laughs> y'all, y'all had me in some rooms. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> um, but yeah, when we get into my story, we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about what was going through my head. But man, so that's that started. That was like a marker for me because I'm like, okay, so this dude is he's talking like this about this guy. This should be easy. It should be a slam dunk to throw him out because it's not like if you throw him out, it's it's you you throwing out everybody. It's dozens of other dudes you could have, <laughs> like, but you keep him. I'm like, what? How? And so then there's the James White situation. That's the one. Then there's. That was that was a huge one, right? And but then there's also all these people and the conversation behind the scenes, which kind of led us up to um, the 2016 moment, which I think was your leave loud moment. Yeah. Really, talk about that period, like that that James White period, and then that the I don't feel safe worshiping white yeah. people. Period. So so folks gotta realize, and you might already know this listening to me or watching my social media. I'm I'm pretty circumspect in what I say. I try to be. Uh, Even if I have a very strong opinion, I'll sit on it and see if I still feel that way, you know? Um, And I try to see the nuances in situations, et cetera, et cetera. All that as preface to say, when Donald Trump came down the escalators of his own hotel in 2015, calling some Mexican immigrants rapists, I knew instantly this was not the one. It was one of those moments of moral clarity that stands out in my entire life. Yes, bro. Like yes. it was like there was it was like it was like you in that moment with 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 uh, Piper talking about Doug Wilson. Like, no, this is clear. You cannot equivocate. You got to denounce this period. And the fact that you would hem and haw and, you know, make excuses and like that's a huge red flag. That's what Trump was for me. And by this time, we had built ran up enough. I had been speaking and, and articulating this stuff enough that I could actually say some things. So a couple things went down. One thing I'll never forget 
I don't remember exactly what I posted, and I'm still pretty circumspect um, uh, on social media to this day, but especially back in 2015. But I posted something that was mildly critical of Trump, may not even mention his name, I don't remember. But there was a guy at my church who was a deacon, and he called, white dude from the South, um, he called one of the elders to basically put me in, 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 in my place. Um, Hmm. And are you under care at this point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way that it works in the PCA, uh, if you want to be ordained, you've got to come under care, which means uh, you're on the presbytery's radar as as a candidate for ordination. And, you know, you got to go to the uh, presbytery meetings. That's the the regional body of elders. And then uh, you also need an internship where you can get the practical experience. So I'm interning at this multiracial church is very well known in the PCA great pastor. The preacher was amazing. Um, but just read Corey Edwards, The Elusive Dream, and you'll know that no matter what the dynamics of an individual congregation, if it's embedded in a denomination or a network that's predominantly white, it's still going to have those strictures. And that was very much the case where I was. So this dude at my church called an elder to basically put me in my place and say, as an intern of the church, I needed to stay out of politics. I needed to say this, that I promise you, if I'd said something pro Trump, he wouldn't have said boo, you know? So it wasn't even just politics, right? It was, it was non-Republican politics. And then, um, the election comes, I mean, there's a whole bunch that happens 2015, 2016, right? Emmanuel nine, all that stuff. But, uh, cell phone videos, people getting murdered, black people getting murdered by law enforcement. So all of this is building to a fever pitch, black lives matter, But it's in the context of the 2016 presidential election cycle. And then the election comes and that infamous number comes out. 81% of white evangelicals who voted pulled the lever for Trump. And that was bracing. I think everybody was just like, double take on that one. No matter how cynical you were about white evangelicals, that was still bracing. And yeah, it was damn Yeah. Yeah. It was like after all of this, I mean, all that stuff that came out from the philandering to uh, the the hush money to you name it, you know, it was scandal after scandal after scandal. Not only did he win, he won with overwhelming support from the most moralistic people, the people who claim to hold the moral high ground, the quote unquote religious right, you know, the moral majority. They're the ones who supported him in the biggest numbers and did so throughout his presidency. So Bo, I don't know if Bo called me up or what, but he was like, we need to get your reaction. <laughs> I don't know where you were. Bro, <laughs> no, well, oh yeah. So actually I was in ATL. I was in ATL preaching. <laughs> Doing the Lord's work. No, so I preached that weekend and then it was, Malina was with me. And I think it was like one of our first times that we had to just be able to chill that. by yeah. ourselves. And um, I didn't, I don't think I brought my mic. And I remember it was, it, this is funny. This is funny, bro. I had, we had dinner with Trenton. Y'all, you know, Trenton. We had, we had a uh, dinner with Trenton, one of our PTM listeners, shout out to Trenton. Man, um, I real, real loyal PTM yes. listener. In um in ATL and so we had dinner with him and the the election was they, they were announcing the results it was the night of the election and I remember I was like what in the heck is going on so I was so rude that night because I'm like listening to Trenton talk 
And I'm like looking up at the, I'm like, bro, I'm so sorry. I cannot believe this has happened. They call it state after state, mm. right? And so I remember like I, I turned to Malina and I was like, this is this is about to happen. It was like one state he won. I was like, oh, snap. And I we actually were supposed to stay there another day. And I was like, we got to go wow. back tomorrow. And she was like, really? I'm like, yeah, babe, we got to go back home. For like safety? Well, yeah. And there was also, I feel like there was an event that was happening in Pensacola. It was like some, the resistance was like forming. Um, it was safety and there was also some event, I feel like. I can't remember, but we was, she was like, yeah, she was, she was so serious. She was like, yeah, we do. <laughs> and I don't know why she said it. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, so I remember when y'all sent me that link and you text me, you was like, bruh, it's about to be, it's about to be some issues. And when you said, I, I'm, I don't feel safe worshiping with white, with white people this weekend. I was like, oh. <laughs> See, I don't even know if I knew that much. I was just being honest. I said, yo. I remember I tilted my head to the side. I was like, oh, this is about to be a thing. <laughs> this is about to be a thing. I remember I, I took a deep breath and I said, oh. Boy. And it was. It was. You want to talk about a moment? That was a moment. So I said, you know, you can go back and listen to the episode now. I said, I did not feel safe worshiping um, at my predominantly white evangelical church because they had voted 81% for this toxic, infantile, narcissistic man, right? Despite, despite, that was the galling part. Black people, Mexican immigrants, the immigrant community in general, women, Every sort of historically oppressed group was jumping up and down, waving our arms and shouting, hey, this is not going to be good for us. And in the midst of all that, these white evangelicals said, whatever, and voted for him. Hmm. And so I was like, it was, it was such a sense of betrayal um, because... I had invested so much of myself and my family into these communities by this time I had we had gone to their churches they had held my son in their arms we had prayed together I had worked 12 14 hour days for the seminary or the church. I had gone on the road to recruit. I had waved the banner for the PCA, for the seminary, for this branch of Christianity. And then when the rubber really hit the road, when a, a, a true moment of meaning came, they didn't just fail a little bit. It was catastrophic, the failure. Bro, it was so vicious. I rem I remember, man, just the the stuff, the tweets, the man, the entire podcast episodes, the videos. I was concerned for your safety. It was that bad that I remember. I was concerned for your safety. I was like, bro, they were feeling themselves. And at that time, 
Oh, bruh. And, but see, and at that time, we had already talked about changing my name. Yeah. Um, the Reformed African American Network, because we were dealing with so much. Then post, I think, I think post Emmanuel Nine, I think we just got so sick of. Yep. And we were like, no, like they're killing and, us. And I got it. You were instrumental in this because you were so you were embedded in a black church context where you knew the what the things I was saying was the least. It was the mildest, and you saw the pushback we were getting. But you were like, bro, no. Like among black Christians, this isn't even a question. Like you can go way harder than even you're going. And of course, if we're going to be helpful to black people, we need to get to a space and a place mentally, spiritually, theologically, where we can have a full-throated affirmation and acclamation of black people and a full-throated denunciation of racism and white supremacy that tries to oppress us. So I just want to make clear to folks that had it not been for you and, and your perspective in the midst of this whole thing, I don't, I don't know what direction I would have taken it without that perspective. Man, I think we're all trying to figure it out. D- did you stay, do you feel like you stayed too long? Because you didn't leave immediately. I don't simply because I was trying to figure out where we were going to land. Because this wasn't just Jamar. This was the organization. So one of the things I'm proudest of, one of the things I'm proudest of in the history of the organization is we had that retreat in summer 2017. And we got the team together. This is one of the rare times because we all work remotely, all work at a distance. And we spent a couple of days together just going through mission, vision, current state of things. And that's how we came up with the name The Witness. We announced it that October. So. I don't think I stayed too long in the sense of I was trying to make a decision not just for myself, but for this whole organization and this whole group of people where we'd already built a following and a community and a platform. So I wanted to make sure that we did it well. Um, so what ca- what came first? Was it the shift of the organization, the change of the name, or the leaving of your specific church? Like what and and kind of the disassociation from the eldership. Like what happened first? Okay, just to just to fill in the the cracks, um, I recorded that infamous podcast about not feeling safe. That was, I think, we released that the day after the election, so it was that week. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. um, this dude, James White, white dude, Arizona, self styled apologist, and he did an hour-long video blog takedown of my whole thing. That was the first time I'd ever seen that. You know, people would make comments, but he took a whole hour to talk about me. But first he tried to get you on the Oh, yeah, he did. First he tweeted you and was like, hey, I'm going live in an hour. Yeah. Do you want to join? And mind you, I didn't know who this dude was. So I'm like, huh, well, I mean, maybe. I, I, Like, there was a maybe, but I think you were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Um, you knew this, uh, no. So I was like, nah, I'm cool. Hey man, knew my boy was about to get jumped, man. You sound the alarms when you're homeboy. That's where I come from, man. See, you know, you about to get jumped. Don't, don't right, up, right, man. right, right. Um, so, so you, yeah, you got to have good friends around you. Uh, my wife saved us from publishing that article. You saved me from going on that podcast, but then he went ahead and did his own thing. And what I didn't realize was it wasn't just him. It was all his minions. 
And when I say for the next three weeks solid, every time I logged on to social media, it was the worst racism I've ever seen. It was racist memes. They were throwing out words, didn't do nothing, uh, you know, stuff I had never even heard of. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. And that was, it got so bad that my eye would twitch every time I opened up the internet because the stress hmm. was that, was that bad. Right. And, 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 it, and that told me that there's something to this justice thing because I thought race was the most controversial thing. It was the politics. It was the racial politics that, that, that all hell broke loose for me and for us. So that's, um, fall 2016. And I bounced from the PCA right about then um, because mm, okay. I had moved from Jackson back to the Delta so I could start my PhD. That was fall 2016. And it was right about then um, because I couldn't go to the presbytery meetings anymore that I'll never forget this, that the chair of what they call the credentials committee, which is in charge of ordination for the presbytery, called me and was like, hey, what do you want to do? I know you can't really get to these meetings. Do you want to still try to keep it up? This might have been spring 2017, but it was right in that area. We, I, I was Fall 2016, I was already distancing myself. I wasn't going to that church anymore because I wasn't in the town. I wasn't looking for no PCA churches at that point. Um, I'm only barely involved in the presbytery at this point. My ordination is still in process, but it's basically stalled. I've already got my degree. So, so I didn't have any, this was my last formal tie. Head of the credentials committee calls me up and he's like, hey, what do you want to do? I was like, I better just bow out because I got all this other stuff going on. I got to get this degree, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, I'm, I think that's pretty good. And this is the part that floored me. He said, you know, for ordination, you have to sit for examinations and you do it in front of the whole presbytery. And it's this nerve wracking thing because they just pepper you with questions in front of all the elders in the whole region, right? And then they have a couple of designated people to do it. Then when they're done, they open it up to anybody, any of the elders to, to ask you questions. And so this dude from the committee was like, it's probably a good thing that you bow out of the ordination process because I know that there are a couple of guys who, he didn't put it in these terms, but basically they were going to ask me gotcha questions about race because they wanted to paint mm -hmm. me as this Marxist, liberal, communistic kind of thing. And at the moment I was like, yeah, that's pretty much what I thought would happen. I wasn't surprised. But then I thought about it later and I'm like, why would you as the head of the credentials committee not squash yeah, that? How do you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how do you just let that oh, just casually man. insert that in the conversation? Yeah, this was probably going to happen. No, the way it should have went down is some folks said they were going to try to do that. I shut that down. I shut that down. It wasn't going to happen on my watch. But that's how they make space, bro. That's how they make space. So anyway, that was... So you transitioned then, and then we made the decision in 2017. Yeah. You were like, yeah, we're going to change the name. And bro, let me just say this, because I think I think this is important, and you can, you can kind of fill in the gaps. But I remember when we recorded that first podcast, because we were at a conference. <laughs> And, and I mean, it was, it was, yo, and again, like the conference was dope. Like it was a dope conference. It's no shade to the conference at all. I remember, man, I walked in to the conference and I turned to you. Well, I walked in the conference, I turned to you and then I turned and looked at the audience and we were both leading a workshop 
And this is a conference you had told me about, like we have been, you know, you have been to for years. And there's nothing wrong with the conference. I just, we got in the car and I turned to look to you and said, this is not our crowd. And I was like, bro. And it wasn't that we couldn't find people that, it wasn't that there wasn't dopeness like in the space. Like there was, but like, I looked at you, I was like, bro, something off. Like this ain't our group. This don't feel like family. This don't feel like what I thought it was going to feel like. And I remember when you recorded, when we recorded that podcast, I was sitting across from you. We was in the hotel room. Bo was there, and we were recording this podcast. We had recorded like three or four podcasts. We did the whole um, um, Black People in Reform podcast because I was on those. about something. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was so mad about something. And um, uh, we were, and Aaron was in the room yeah. with us um, listening. And then, bro, I, I remember your face when we recorded that podcast. And your face, bro, I'm going to tell you this. I never told you this. Your face looked like somebody close to you had passed away. Mm. It looked like a family member died. And it made me hesitant because I was like, man, it's, I was like, oh, I don't know if we're actually going to run this. Like, Jamar might be like, ah, well, you know, like, let's pull back. But we were announcing the name change and the shift. Yeah. And we were also in the midst of people, a lot of people, man, and and I'll keep this just to to us, so I'm not going to say names or anything in this context, but it was a lot of folks, man, that were black at these conferences that did Jamar dirty, bro. Did Jamar dirty. Um, Did the organization dirty. Let's keep it a buck. Like for real, like disassociated with us, was cool with us, and then was was ghost. Um, and popped up when they wanted to check us, check our theology, our orthodoxy. Um, and I was like, man, it really like in the juxtaposition of all that, it was like a very tough moment because I looked across from me, I was like, bro, it looked like somebody in his family passed away. What, did you feel like that when you made the decision? <sighs> When, when all this stuff was changing, did you feel like something died? I had gone to seminary under the premise that I would get ordained in the PCA and be a full-time pastor, and that was going to be my life, profession, calling. And I felt like I got pushed out of that. And now I had to figure out what I was going to be and what I was going to do and who I was going to do it with, who was going to be my community at that point. And to sort of put it in psychological terms, um, guilt means you feel bad that you did something wrong. Shame is when you think you are wrong. Who you are is wrong. Let me let me run that back. Shame, er, let me run this back. Guilt says that you've done something wrong. Shame says who you are is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had been shamed 
out of these communities that I had dedicated so much of myself to. When they came on and they said talking about race was heretical, was anti-gospel, was social justice warrior, Marxist, I felt like they're saying, Jamar, who you are is wrong. Hmm. And I've said this for the longest. If you are black in these spaces, you either get pushed out, burned out, or you sell out. And I got pushed out. And that process felt like a burning out at the same time. It was exhausting. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's hot and heavy, man. It hadn't ended when we were doing this. And I remember bracing ourselves for the backlash because, and it did come, as soon as we changed the name, they said, there they go. Just like we thought. They went liberal. It's a slippery slope. Once you start talking about race and racism and white supremacy, then you start doing funny things with the Bible. You don't believe in God's word. You, you know, approve of this, that, and the other. And here they are. They don't even, they're not even reformed anymore. But we had said, and you helped me with this. We said, y'all want to claim that label? Take it. We're not going to fight over this anymore. Because what happened was we were spending so much time arguing with the racists, arguing with the Theo bros, arguing with the, 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 the white supremacist apologists, that it, not only was it draining us, it was, it, was, it was distracting us from the work that was meant for us. Namely, the work of liberating other black people through our witness and the witness of the community, right? And so, and so I remember for me, it was, it was just this very distinct decision, like, take the label. I, don't, I literally don't know whether I'm Reformed, you know, Christian, you know, in that branch of the church anymore. There's been so much deconstruction and rewiring and relearning and unlearning. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to label it. I call myself a black Christian. I say I'm evangelical adjacent because this has been my community and I still understand it to a degree and I'm still even near it to a degree. But I said, you can have the label. You can have the social network. You can have the platforms. You can have the conferences. I don't want it. It used to be my goal and ambition. I'm going to tell you this. Remember when I said it was my ambition to get on the main stage at a TGC conference? I got on one, but it was in an unexpected way. It was as part of a two or three person panel talking about race, obviously. And I got a question about MLK's theology. And I can't remember where this came from. (laughs) It was a God moment. I was like, because they told me just before I got on stage, they told me backstage what the questions would be. And I remember thinking in that instance, okay, I know what I'm going to do with this question. So in front of thousands of people in the room and thousands more online, they asked me this question about basically about MLK's orthodoxy. And I turned it around. I was like, I'm more interested in the theology of slaveholders who white Christians continue to prop up 
I'm more interested in probing the theological orthodoxy of a George Whitfield or a Jonathan Edwards or any sort of Christian segregationist than somebody who literally was killed standing up for the image of God in, in black people. Like, that's the conversation. That was the first time I was on a main stage at the TGC conference and the last time. <laughs> That was it. Uh, they didn't, I don't, I don't know, you know, nobody said anything. I just never got invited back and I never pursued it. Didn't want to be. So it, it was just interesting how talk, God worked that. Can you talk a little bit about what else you lost? Hmm. Like you, you didn't just lose that, but like, what else did you lose? Like what else, how much did this cost you? So one of the things most people don't know <clears throat> they know I'm getting my PhD at the University of Mississippi. I actually started out at um, getting my PhD at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Hmm. So this okay, I didn't know that either. <laughs> <laughs> I've mentioned this, but I don't really talk about it too much. But uh, we we leave in loud. So um, okay, bet bet. Again, it feels like the rug is being pulled out from under me vocationally because I'm like, I don't know if I can stick with this thing. So I'm coming up on graduation from seminary with my MDiv and I don't know about this ordination thing. I don't know what's next. So I start looking into PhD programs and it's very particular. Like I'm looking into modular programs so I can kind of stay where I am and all this stuff. And uh, I stumble upon um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary had a modular PhD program in a brand new discipline that were doing Christian ethics. And I wanted to do something mm -hmm. to where I could talk about race. I was like, well, I can talk about race and ethics. This will, this will work. I remember going, they had a really extensive interview process, more than even you know, a lot of secular schools, which you had to do this. You had to do readings then you had to come for like an in-person interview. It was this whole thing. And first of all, the money there was incredible because I remember they have their own hotel at the seminary and they picked me up from the airport in, I don't, I don't think it was a rental. I think they owned this big black suburban, like government mm -hmm. officials would ride around there. And then um, I remember being in the interview with, of course, all white men, uh, their seminary professors, and it's an interview. So I'm expecting to be peppered with questions, of course. But they're not asking me the questions I think or I was expecting. They're asking me questions about the black experience. Like, help us understand. Hmm. You know, like. Uh-uh. Yeah. No, mm -hmm. bro. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was good faith. It was just that they were completely ignorant. And I was like, these are the men I'm supposed to be learning from. You're supposed to be able to tell me things that I don't know. And I was like, I don't think this is going to work. But in a sideways way, it got me to where I'm going because I knew, so I got into the program, went through orientation and everything. There's a Facebook picture on it with like 500 likes of me standing in front of the, the seminary with a suit on. I'm looking fresh, but, you know, um, and fresh to death, literally. <laughs> it was a whole thing. I was super duper excited, but I knew I wasn't going to get the sort of racial background and education from a scholarly. So, so that's when I enrolled dual enrollment. I was in a um, master's program at Jackson State University in history and took a class with Robbie Luckett and it completely flipped the script for me 
educationally. So taking that class, having a couple of conversations, I knew I, I, I knew I had to switch programs. But I'll also never forget the way they announced when I was at Southern, the way they announced it was at a conference. They hadn't told me I got into the program yet. And they went on stage and announced not only had I gotten into the program, but they asserted that I would be the first PhD candidate in this new program. And I remember feeling so tokenized because they hadn't asked me if I accepted. They just assumed I would accept once I got in. And then put it on display for a whole bunch of white people and a whole bunch of people I didn't know. Wow. And they were well-meaning. They thought it would be, you know, kind of cool way to announce it and everything. But I was like, no, uh-uh, no. This doesn't feel right. So I already had misgivings in it anyway. Um, so I lost, you know, I won't say I lost that, but it was like, it was like this yet another thing that I had invested in that wasn't going to be right. And then leaving the PCA, you know, ecclesiastically, I still like Presbyterianism, not this denomination. But the, you know, plurality of elders, the, the, the clear sort of processes for things, the book of church order, that kind of stuff. I don't, I, I'm, I'm in a non-denominational church right now, which is, you know, it's the church is the church. Um, but I had made deliberate decisions about where I wanted to sort of ecclesiastically place myself. And if it's going to come with all this racism and whiteness, I got to leave that behind. But I didn't leave all of it. You know, there, there are some things that if, there wasn't that stuff there. I would, I would still, you know, be down with. I'm definitely like I can't go back to Jackson anymore. I mean, I visit, but it's a place of trauma for me. And there's some opportunities where you know me and my family could go back and maybe live and work, but I'm like, mm, that place feels spiritually dark for me. Mm. It would be a place of constant re-traumatization. And so it's like a whole city that I feel like I can't, can't, can't be safe in, spiritually speaking. Um, and it's a big, it's a small, big town and it's a big, small town. So like everybody knows each other. So you can't be in a city and just right. get lost, right? You're going to bump into some of these people who ghosted you, who said things about you. You know, I haven't even given all the details about conversations I have with church folks, um, but that was a big part of it too. So um, there's a whole deep South city, which I had come to love, that I don't feel comfortable in. And it uh, goes on and on. Mm. Whew. Well, man, this is so much. I, I only have one more question, man. I think you know it's impossible to exhaust the topic, and this has been already a long conversation. And you've been so gracious in being honest with us, man. And really exposing some things that, you know, a lot of us did not know. And I didn't even know in some cases, um, man, when did you know it was worth it? Mm. When did you know it was worth it to leave? Mm. I, I can imagine a lot of people struggling with the present because I, I remember seeing you with the death look on your face in, in grief and mourning. But I also remember you seeing it, seeing you on stage at Joy and Justice <laughs> Conference, right? Like I also remember seeing you 
you know, in these various speaking engagements, also see the light when you lead in groups. You know, so I see it. I see it differently because, and a lot of other people they 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 didn't see that 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 trajectory. They didn't see that that they can't draw that line. Um, oh. As jagged as it may be, as zigzaggy as it may be, right? But when did you know? When were you like it was all worth it? Oh. Or have you even reached that point? Because that's real. Like if you haven't, like that's real too, you know. But but when was the evidence where you were like, this meant something, this mattered, and it wasn't all in vain? Whew, what a great question. So the retreat where we decided to change the name was a big one. Because to this day, when the witness team gets together, it feels like family. And it feels like even though we're working, it's a spiritual retreat. I come away from that so full. And to spend a couple of days together with folks who knew exactly what was going down, all the opposition and headwinds we faced, and talk about essentially how do we serve Black people better? That, that was like, if we can do this, keep going with this, I can do this forever. Another moment, a very sort of esoteric moment, was seeing, after we changed the name, and seeing the new logo. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Went through this. Yes. Shout, yeah. shout out. Well, no, no, actually, hold up, yeah. hold up. Go, but go ahead, give it a shout out. Shout out to John Aragon. Yes, but bro, I I wasn't there. <laughs> remember? What were you doing? Do you remember this? No, I, I don't know. I think I got in late or something. Something happened and I couldn't make that meeting. And then y'all were, we were walking into a coffee shop. We were getting breakfast or something. And they were like, yo, let's show you this. Show oh, Tyler yeah. the logo. We can show, we yeah. show you the logo. And I was like, ooh. Yeah. And, and y'all were just, everybody was just kind of like staring at me. And I was like, oh. You were God. the only one. Everybody saw it first. And they were like, oh, this is dope. And then we showed Tyler, who is the like trained critic in the group. And uh, you're like, eh. No, I was, I said it was dope. I said it was dope. No, I was all in. No, because there's this thing on the team. They think I'm a. They think I'm a hater. Like, the team thinks I'm a hater. I'm not a hater. I say you, you, you like the critic, but I mean like a professional, like a food critic, a movie critic. That's your thing. So look, I'm naturally skeptical <laughs> in life. Okay, so if I meet you and I look at you, I don't smile immediately. I'm just skeptical about everyone, even myself. <laughs> don't take it personal. But, it's systemic. With don't that. take it personal. Uh, yeah, it's systemic. It's systemic. I'm working through it. But no, bro, I I, I, re, I remember that, that moment. And I remember you telling me about how you, you felt in that moment. Yeah, man. And I love the name, The Witness, right? It's, it, it's got so much mileage. And it's so authentic to what we're doing, to who we are. A lot of folks don't know this. I know you don't want me to rehash the whole history. I'm talking about the future, actually. And I'm talking about the legacy. So I want future historians, 30, 40, 50 years from now, should the Lord tarry, to go back and they are looking at the witnessbcc.com articles as primary source materials for the history books they're going to write about race and religion in this period of time. I want this podcast to be primary source material for people trying to make sense of the racial climate and the religious landscape at this moment. I want to leave a legacy 
I want the witness to leave a witness for the future. I want folks to be looking us up, man. I want to be looking us up like like the Liberator magazine and, or, you know, uh, Jet magazine. Right. They're going to be looking up the witness content. Right. That feels real true to me personally as a historian, but also to the black Christian tradition and leaving a legacy. We are going to be the ancestors one day. And I want to make sure we leave a good legacy. And then it's not just for the future, it's for the present time right now. So when we got these politicians popping off at the mouth and popping off at the pen, writing legislation that oppresses people, there's a witness to stand up and say, huh, uh, 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 that ain't right. When these white Christians are doing everything they can to keep racist, slavery apologists, white supremacists in their camp. We're like, mm, nope, nope, that ain't right. When a black person gets murdered on camera yet again, and a human being becomes a hashtag, we say the names of black women. We never forget the black men. We're there as a witness. And it just feels right. Amen. Thank you, brother. This is a gift to us. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.